Game of Zones and Corey Jez, former lead analytics for the Utah Jazz, now the analytics insider for the Blazers broadcast. He joins the show to talk numbers, some of his best friends, on Round Ball Roundup on utahjazz.com. I'm J.P. Chunga on the Utah Jazz Podcast Network, presented by First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jazz, and MLS number 3112, equal housing lender. Jazz are playing zone. And if there were only somebody who watched a team play that type of defense for four years, watched it a lot, appreciated it, oh wait, guilty is charged. Yeah, it brings a smile to my face because I get a little nostalgic about watching zone. I watched one of the masters conduct it, recruit to it, play years of basketball with it. And even though they're not winning as much this year, it still makes me think it's some of the best seasons of my life watching basketball. That's what it's all about. Getting nostalgic, thinking about good times. And on that note, I remember talking to Quinn Snyder about zones. And he brought up how zones in the league are primarily out of bounds under your own goal, defensively. There's going to be movement. And if you're playing a zone defensively, you can respond to it quicker, more adept at it. There are shooters that can knock you out of it if you're in the half court. And some teams don't have the length to play it. Syracuse recruits to getting the zone. That's why they get so much length. Jeremy Grant... When he's playing in a zone, it looks like he has eight limbs. It frustrates opponents. They go on Twitter rants about it. Not those Twitter rants. But it's frustrating to play against. Because some teams get entirely knocked out of their offense. They don't know how to respond to it. It's the theory of Syracuse basketball for 45 years. To great acclaim, may I add. But the Jazz did it last game and it worked. Because Utah's been leaky defensively. We talked about in the last podcast, they've been one of the worst defensive teams over the last two weeks. It's been atrocious. They couldn't get rebounds. They couldn't defend the rim. Point of attack. It was all difficult for them. But against the Clippers, admittedly, not a great offense. They didn't have Kawhi. Didn't have PG. Didn't have Norman Powell, who went off the night before. But even with those limited parts, according to Tribune, triple team. Jazz played 29 possessions of zone, 28 points for the Clippers. 0-4 Pistons? No. Much better than one of the worst defenses in the league. They got stops, utilized their best rim protector, Walker Kessler. He's the only one that inspires fear in your heart. When you're driving the rim, who's going to block your shot? Walker or Kelly Olenek? Advantage Walker, right? So, Will Hardy did something pretty interesting where he put Kelly Olynyk and Lowry Markkinen at the top of the zone. They can provide length, get in the way of some of those easy passes. And if they get beat on the perimeter, right there, Walker Kessler. He gets four blocks. He looks great. And the Jazz gets stops. It can be hard to rebound out of his zone because you're not matching body-to-body, man-to-man with somebody. So wondering who's going to grab that rebound Might not fix those woes, because that's been the talking point over the last couple of games, is how they haven't been able to clean up or finish possessions. They get to third down, but allow the team to convert on fourth. 
That's not completing the possession. They have to stop those drives and get their possession going the other way. But the rebounding wasn't an issue when they played the zone, at least in limited possessions. Small sample size theater, understandably. But 29 possessions, 28 points, take that. It's a junk, it's a wrinkle against inexperienced teams, poor shooting teams, can throw it out there, and can get you some stops. For now, add Utah to the list of zone defense teams. Miami, Portland, watch out. Five stars, nice reviews, that's all I ask of you. Let others know that you're listening to the podcast. Corey Jez, he used to be Jazz Analytics on the front office side, translating the numbers to coaches, players, when it came to the draft, when it came to coaches' challenges, new rule, last couple years. Jez was on the front end of it. Now he's the Blazers analytics insider. He works with our guy Neil Everett. But I wanted to get Jez on to talk about his gains when he was in the Jazz front office. He's working here. How did Utah use the numbers? I asked him that and more. It's Corey Jez on Round Ball Roundup on UtahJazz.com. When it comes time to move, it's always a hassle. Loading everything in the truck, hoping the priceless antique from your mother doesn't break, and trying to juggle the kids and dog in the middle of it all is enough to drive anyone crazy. But it doesn't have to be that way. The friendly, background-checked movers at Bailey's Moving and Storage have the expertise to move your family across town or even around the world. So when it's time to move, think Bailey's Moving and Storage. Call today at 801-218-2640 or check them out online at baileysallied.com. why sports is kind of is a really great way to teach statistics analytics software development coding whatever kind of mathematical concept you're trying to break down um because the the inputs the points the rebounds the assists, the game that's happening happen on television it's something that's very familiar in the american zeitgeist right like people understand generally and obviously if they're sports nuts they really understand what's going on and what these things are. It's way less esoteric than trying to teach statistics with a, uh, we're looking at a healthcare data set and, and, you know, the kind of all these classic toy data sets that they, they teach data on. Um, and so I think it's really great for that more tangibly. Uh, I mean, it's, so it's in the public domain and what that means is capturing it and measuring it is also in the public domain. It's not financial. So you don't have to wait for somebody to release a data set or something. And so I'll plug very quickly. Um, there's an open source sports data community called sports Dataverse. Um, it's run by a guy by the name of Saim Galani um, and some others. But if people Google sports Dataverse, they can find out how to access publicly available data sets for every, um, every sport, pro basketball, college basketball, baseball, certainly, um, American football. Um, there's a really good open source community of people who have done this. And it is what, you know, for people who want to just do it as a hobby, maybe they're curious to put in, you know, they want to analyze their own team um, or they want to put together kind of, you know, proof of work that because they, they, they might want to try to make it their avocation. It's out there. It's definitely, definitely out there. Um, for example, one of the things I had built 
again, this is probably gosh, six, seven years ago. So I'm sure if I went and looked at it now, I'd cringe, but um, a very simple shot prediction model. So if you know, what are all the things we can know about a shot, um, bef- you know, as it's taken. So uh, was it off the dribble or um, d- did the player get past the ball? Where on the floor was it? Who was taking it? How close is the closest defender? All, all those types of things. And you know that you can build a machine learning model, try to predict whether or not the shot was make it made. Um, and then you can look at what the model predicts and what actually happens. The model said it's a 60% chance to make it. Yes or no, it actually went in. Um, and, you know, analyses like that that are simple, um, but a great way to get started and a great way to um, try to get your feet wet with sports and data. What is the day-to-day when it comes to your job when you were with the Utah Jazz? So I think one of the the biggest things that gets overlooked, you know, if you talk about sports analytics, and I actually, analytics is a convenient term, but it's probably not the most correct term anymore, speaking about teams in general across all sports and how they're using data. You know, I would think about it as sports technology, sports information. Um, analytics being a pillar of that. You know, if analytics is the act of, you know, building a model or extracting insight out of information. Um, that's a huge part of the job, obviously, but it is just a part of the job. And the other parts of the job are all the technology that's around that, from the technology you're using to capture the information, the technology you're using to share that information with your stakeholders, so the general manager, the ca- the coaching staff, the scouts, and all the underlying infrastructure that's necessary. And so... Um, you know, if you, a lot of times, if you, you know, if you get into the weeds of this industry, people will go to conferences or they'll read papers and they're all about these very newfangled, advanced, uh, you know, models and approaches, very academic stuff, but a a much more pragmatic level, the day-to-day is a lot of software work. Um, It is a lot of what we call infrastructure, data engineering, um, doing all the things to enable your organization to leverage that information. So one of the first things that I did the first six to 12 months when I was within, with Utah, um, and there, you know, there was kind of a piecemeal together technology stack, uh, but we really wanted to get it under one roof and we really wanted to get it into a place where we, we, and we meaning basketball operations, um, had total control of the technology stack. So if we needed something, we didn't have to raise our hand and ask somebody else to help us. Um, and so that was that was a big, you know, big lift over the first year was let's just get everything in house, a database, you know, cloud computing to host everything. What's the front end going to look like? We've certainly got we had models and, and we're always building and, and improving, you know, player valuation models, draft models. Uh, but let's get all of that stuff together so that we can really make it high leverage for the organization. How much of a resource and how much are you bouncing off of? the other people in the organization, front office coaches, when you're doing your work so that it's all working in conjunction with the ultimate goal, winning championships, winning games, winning playoff rounds. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of the most unique parts, I think, of, of doing a, a data technology role in a sports organization relative to kind of in a, in a general business organization because the work is so context specific. You know, the way that Quinn Snyder wanted to play basketball um, is different from any other coach in the league. And so you cannot take a, 
you know, a top-down kind of generic approach to, you know, these types of shots are good, these types of shots are bad. You know, even looking at those teams, when I came, it was Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors in, in the starting lineup, right? And, and you know, when I left, the, the four-man was Boyan Bogdanovich. So those teams are going to operate super differently. And maybe that means um, the way you visualize a shot chart is different because you know you're going to get shots or try to prevent opponent shots in different ways. Maybe that means that, you know, the way you look at lineup data is different because you expect the Gobert favors lineups to have really good defensive numbers. And you expect the Boyan and four, three other shooters with Rudy lineups to have really good offensive numbers. And, you know, in the, in the weeds of the math, maybe you have to account for those things differently. So it's very context specific. Um, but kind of the whole point of the job is, it's a context that you really care about. You're very already very interested in, right? Cause it's basketball. And so, you know, whether it's working with at the time, Walt Perrin and working at the draft, who's now the assistant GM of the Knicks um, or, you know, Vince Lagarza and Zach Guthrie, you know, former members of coach Snyder's coaching staff. Um, you know, for me, it's like wide eyed kid in a candy shop. Cause those guys know so much more about intricacies of their part of the sport, but I can bring to the table, the, you know, here's what here's what we have available in this wide universe of data that we can, you know, try to ask and answer those questions a little better. So it's, it's, it's a really fun part of the job. How do you use analytics in the draft? Because it's not necessarily the sport that you're watching day to day with an NBA team. It's college basketball or European basketball. It's different. It is not in any way what you're seeing in the job that you're doing right there. How does analytics play into the draft and drafting for teams yeah anybody who works in the nba will tell you that college basketball is an entirely different sport altogether i mean it truly 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 is um the the spacing on the floor you know the way pick and rolls are run the shot clock there's there's so many things um almost every team in the nba will have to describe it monolithically although it could mean a lot of different things a, a draft model um and very simply, a draft model is taking some set of inputs from college, Europe, whatever you can have. You know, some some players now, especially with all the different paths that players have, the Ignite, um, you have overtime elite, you have, you know, you had players going to New Zealand for a year for a little while. Um, pretty soon they may come straight out of high school. Uh, I don't envy people who have to deal with all that from a data perspective right now. Uh, it was a little cleaner six years ago, but um, uh, taking a set of inputs um that that you'd have on those players and using them to predict their performance in the NBA. Now that that can still mean a million different things, right? What does predict performance in the NBA mean? Are they going to be get NBA minutes? Are they going to be a starter? Are they going to be an all-star? What's how does that tie into the context of different teams that they might go to? How does that tie into the context of the way the league is evolving and like there's huge value on rim protecting spacing bigs nowadays that you know seven footer the, 10 years ago there weren't a lot of seven footers who could shoot threes right and and now there's a lot of them and so how do, how does that work um obviously all the data that's available on the college side is always evolving always changing how do you incorporate their anthropometric data how do you know so they go to the combine they do all this testing they come in for your draft workout they do all this testing um, maybe you don't have that testing on every player. There's a million different iterations of it, but most teams, almost all, all teams in the NBA have some, some iteration 
of that and will use it as a kind of a guidepost in a way to, you know, it's one of that becomes one of the inputs, one of the main inputs to their decision making process as um, an organization. You know, it's ultimately at the end of the day, it's up to a general manager uh, to decide how to weigh all of the inputs. So what do scouts think? What do analytics and, and models think? What do, you know, kind of the personalities of these players look like? How does all that juxtapose with the current makeup and chemistry of their team, right? So it's only at the end of the day, it's an input and one of the key inputs, but it's, you know, it's that's where it gets to be much more uh, art than science. Yeah, it seems like it's more of a, this is how I can compare via the different leagues that we're all comparing to, right? Trying to control for how different the basketball is in those other places where players are coming from yeah you know one of the challenges is like ranking uh ranking all the different european leagues um and trying to quantitatively say okay alex uh alexi pokusevsky is coming from greek second division you know and luka Doncic is coming from real madrid uh we know that real madrid is not as good as the greek or the greek second division is yes yeah 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 (laughs) of course but like when you're doing this from a data science perspective, from a quantitative perspective, you can't just say, well, this is twice as good. You can't, like, you have to quantitatively, you need to, you know, as a function of, of the algorithm. And so um, that exercise in and of itself, you know, you could say a similar thing. You know, this is why Ken Palm, Salt Lake resident Ken Palm, has such a great, uh, you know, a great business. His whole, you know, site is how do you account for the fact that Gonzaga plays a very different schedule than you know, the University of Virginia um, and, you know, different players in college are going to face very, very different quality of opponents. That's going to affect their stats. Those stats are inputs to the, to a model. Right. And so how do we account for those things? It's um, it's a part where the domain knowledge, you know, going back to that context um, comes in as well, you know, to, to, to really have a good understanding of, you know, the, the different styles of basketball, you know, Luca, you know, going back to the Luca example, there'd never been a player to come out of Europe. Uh, you know, Jokic hadn't popped at, you know, at the time Luca was drafted. He hadn't, I don't think he'd, he was certainly a good player, but he hadn't like won MVPs yet. Um, there wasn't really a player to come out of Europe, certainly at that age, at that league, that high level. Um, the, the mod, you know, models by and large had a hard time handling kind of the Luca case. Right. Um, no, you know, there'd been second rounders and guys who'd had good careers. Um, but yeah, you know, it's something that if you haven't seen it before, just like we as, you know, people watching, if we haven't seen this before, wow, I don't really have anything to compare this to. You know, a model generally works in the same way. It says, well, I don't really have anything to compare this to. Um, and so, you know, Luca kind of made the graph go like this a little bit, but there was nothing before to kind of imply that it was going to go like that, you know. Well, something that you hadn't seen before that got introduced during your time was the coaches challenge. What was your influence on how do we best use a coaches challenge for game situation and the right times to press the button, review a call? Yeah. This is still a situation where I envy, you know, my counterparts in the NFL so much you know they get 40 seconds between every decision whether it's to challenge a play or just what play to call you know it's so i don't want to say it's harder in the nba but it's certainly a different dynamic where 
you know, coaches are doing everything on the fly. Um, but yeah, got introduced uh, while I was with Utah. You know, I also happen to be, um, and I'll, I'll give some credit here. Um, Peter Zanka is, is the guy's name, but at the NBA's hackathon that year, um, NBA ho- hosted, um, I'm not sure if they do it post-pandemic, uh, a data hackathon in uh, in New York City in Secaucus. And a lot of team reps would go. You know, it's a recruitment event. It's a place to kind of meet the up-and-comers in the space. And the winning team, this guy named Peter Zank, uh, Zanka and uh, one of his teammates, did a, a project about the, the coaches' challenge. And this was in the summer leading up to it. And, they, you know, they probably at that point had thought harder about the coaches challenge than any other human beings on planet Earth uh, just because it had just been introduced. And so uh, we were basically able to uh, take some of that work, uh, obviously repurpose it a bunch and make it, you know, add our own kind of internal numbers to it. Because it, um, at the NBA level, you you can put very precise numbers to every situation. So if a ball goes sideline out of bounds with 12 seconds left in the shot clock what's that possession worth on average? That's the type of stuff you're looking at versus, you know, what's that worth versus taking a charge and turning it into a block and taking a foul off the board for Rudy Gobert. How many points is that worth? Um, And so um, taking that framework and giving it to Coach Snyder and working really closely with Coach LaGarza at the time um, and the rest of the staff to say, because what you really have to do is you have to distill that down into a, um, you know, very easy kind of archetype scenarios, red, yellow, green type of system to say, here are the things that are almost always challenges. If you, if you see this and you think it's, you think you're right, you think the call is wrong, it's green light, you know, um, almost doesn't matter the situation of the game. You know, here's the stuff that kind of is a little more contextual to the game. And then here are the things that are never worth challenging because the, what I think people don't realize, we've talked about this on the Portland broadcast a couple of times. There's really two things a coach has to decide and and two big things that coach has to decide in a challenge. One is, did the officials get it wrong? That's the the bigger, you know, if, if you're, if they're watching a play, you'll see often coaches, they look back to someone behind the bench with an iPad or a laptop. And those are the people watching, you know, watching the slow-mo and toggling back and through to try to see, you know, they have about 30 seconds to make the call. So um, so that's one. Did they get it right or wrong? So, you know, if you, th- okay, let's say it's a situation where we think the officials are incorrect. Okay. It's overturnable. Is this something it's worth for me to challenge at whatever quarter time game state we're in? Um, there are a lot, of, a lot of situations fall in the middle ground where it's going to depend. Um, the most obvious challenge in the world would be, a goaltending on a three-point play, <laughs> because if you get that right, it just never happens. Maximum right? point ne- never happens. But yeah. uh, if you were convinced the officials had that incorrect, you would either add or subtract, depending on offensive or defensive, three points from the board. Uh, most of the stuff is a, is a lot more kind of in the middle. It's a it's a it's a foul on a shot attempt. So it's going to be two shots for a guy who's a seventy percent free throw shooter. So it's worth one point four. If you can take it off the board, okay, now the games, do you want to do that immediately in the first quarter? Maybe I can make a case for it. Uh, Do you want to do that? Like end of the third in a late, in a close game, probably, Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, you still see a number of coaches will hold them pretty late in the game. Um, 
no. If a coach is holding it late in the game, it kind of comes to, you know, what was the opportunity cost of that? Was there a potential to move it earlier? You know, we, we see situations like and ones where we think like a, a block could be turned into a charge um, is a really good take, uh, especially if the player makes the basket. Um, those are really good opportunities to use them kind of at any point in the game because you could do three points or it's 2.7, depending on how good the free throw shooter is. Um, those are really good situations. So it was putting that whole framework into place and trying to understand it um, without any data because we didn't we had some G League data and summer league data on the coaches challenge, but not really at the NBA level. And so trying to put those frameworks in place um, for not only uh, it's almost if we think the officials got it right or wrong is almost the easier one. It, it's, it's a very binary answer. Should we challenge this? There's a, there's a big, like I said, there's a big gray area there. It's a, it's a, it's almost the tougher part of the calculus for the coaches. I think. Where are you watching the games? Because there is someone behind, you know, with the iPad, you're, I don't imagine that you're running down no. like into the dugout telling them yeah. what to do. Where are you actually watching the games and, and seeing the work? We had, we out? had, we had, we had joked that I was, you know, one of the video coordinators who's sitting behind the bench, we had always joked that I was going to put like a buzzer on them or something when I, <laughs> when I really wanted to challenge. I, I would say in general, you know, most of this work is kind kind of almost at a research level. You know, we were researching and putting a framework in place and the coaches, you know, both knew that framework. And, you know, if you look very closely and you watch a TV broadcast, you know, uh, head coaches have a lot of little papers that are in their pockets and stuff. And uh, that was one of those little papers. And so, um, you know, my my role in that was, you know, really making sure and updating that framework over time, too. If we thought, you know, certain challenges were more or less likely to get overturned as we got new data throughout the season, throughout the years. But um, no, I mean, the the. The in the heat of the moment credit goes to obviously the video coordinators, Steve Cly and his group and the coaching staffs, um, who who kind of have to make that uh make that on the fly. I am not the most qualified person in the room to to say whether or not it was a foul. There's a lot better basketball minds out there, but hopefully we had given them the right, you know, frame of reference to decide, hey, it's this type of foul at this state of the game. That's a yes or a no. Let me tell you about First Colony Mortgage. They've been serving the lending needs of Utah for more than 35 years. As a mortgage banker, First Colony Mortgage offers advantages over other lenders. Not only do they process mortgages, they also underwrite, fund, and close mortgage loans all in-house. Their expert team is ready to help you with your home financing needs. Just check them out. First Colony Mortgage, the official mortgage lender of the Utah Jets. understanding of your job or even analytics in general grow in your time in the league because I even look at Vivid Arena and offensive rating and defensive rating is now on the scoreboard I don't yeah. know if that that's something that I could have imagined in 2010 yeah. uh, where people would know what that means but people do know what that means now it's yeah. something that gets referenced pretty often 
Yeah, the Chase Center in uh, in San Francisco has uh, the four factors even, so it goes even a level deeper and has EFG turnover rate, you know, offensive rebound rate and free throw attempt rate for each team on their uh, on some of their monitors as well. You know, it, it's part of the reason why I'm I was so excited to to take on this broadcasting project with Portland, and um, you know, I think as fans, uh, especially the hardcore fans, they want to understand their teams you know, as much detail as possible. And from this aspect of it, what better way to do that than to try to use the same information that your group is using? You know, a big part of what we've spoken about in our broadcast is, hey, Coach Billups is looking at these numbers, so we're going to look at these numbers, right? And and we're going to understand what they mean and and why do teams not just use points per game or why do they use offensive rating instead of, you know, team points per game? Um and those types of things. And so I think as I think it's it's probably a couple of things. One, just the maturation of these things. You look at baseball and I, I generally everyone's at baseball's ahead and, and people talk about how baseball is uh, more analytically inclined. Um, I think basketball is going to follow a very similar trajectory. Um, our sport is harder to measure. But you could actually make a case that that's a reason to spend more time trying to measure it. Um, and so you look at a baseball broadcast these days, you know, exit velocity, barrel rate, you know, catch probability are pretty part and parcel at this point. Uh, because people understand hitting the ball hard is is kind of a really good indicator of future success, even a better indicator of future success than batting average, for example. Um, and so they're going to talk about it that way. Um, and so I think basketball's doing a very similar thing. Um, I think you parallel that with kind of the new media paradigm as well. In that, you know, I was saying to a friend yesterday, I don't know when the last time I watched Sports Center was. Sorry, Neil Everett. Um, but you know, usually, usually I'll tell you when I watch Sports Center, it's when you know I have YouTube TV, and it's when I am watching ESPN NBA games, and then it it follows into an SVP or a Sports Center, right? That's that's kind of when I watch Sports Center now. It's not. And so people get their information from so many different places, whether it's podcasts, whether it's Twitter accounts, whether it's, you know, blogs, substacks, whatever it is, um, you know, and, and things have popped up, you know, in this space that if you want this double click level of detail about your sports team, you can get it, you know, cleaning the glass, um, which is an invaluable public resource if you like basketball statistics and want to understand your team or the league at a deeper level, um, you know, created by Ben Falk, one of kind of the, the OGs in the space, it's $5 a month and it's truly, truly invaluable. And, you know, 10 years ago, that resource wasn't available either. And so I think all this stuff is kind of moving together. The, the adoption of the sport is definitely at this um, kind of exponential inflection point. Uh, you know, teams are teams are not going to use technology less over the next 10 years, certainly. And so um, I think, you know, certainly it's, it's great to, to do this at an RSN with the Trailblazers and to bring it to those fans. But, you know, even as you look at national broadcasts, you hear Doris Burke talking about second spectrum and pick and roll efficiency and all these things. So, you know, the media landscape has changed. The te- the the technology and the information available has changed. And I think, you know, fans just want to be um, not be smarter because fans have always been smart, but, but get more information about their teams in a way that they've not been able to before. 
it's great for the diehards. If you really want to dive into this, there's so much information available to you. Whether you use Clean the Glass, you go to what Dunks in Threes, other places, like you, there's information out there for you. How has the transition been for you in communicating this? That's got to be priority number one. You can't just throw numbers at people and not, not understand what they mean. How has that transition been like onto a broadcast with the tremendous crew that you guys have in game with Kevin Calabro and Lamar Heard, but with the pregame show with Neil and, and who you have there? Yeah, it's it's definitely been that's been the biggest change for me. It's been the hardest thing for me to do, frankly, something I'm trying to get better at. When you're in a team setting and when you're maybe talking about a, a complex topic like, you know, ridge regression, adjusted plus minus type of stuff, you know, stuff that is super mathy, um, which at the end of the day is trying to value players. Um you have the time and space to dig into those weeds. You know, whether you're in a meeting, uh, whether you're doing it over an email, um, you generally, you, you're not bound by 30 seconds or two minutes. And you're also, you know, communicating with people who generally want to know the weeds of it as well. You know, Dennis Lindsay, Justin Zanuck, Stephen Schwartz, certainly, um, you know, VP of strategy, they wanted to know those details. They want, well, what does the model know? What does it not know? Why does it not know these things? Can what? Can we go get data from somewhere else, from a third party to add to it, right? So you're having those conversations and you're very detailed um, in explaining your process. Um, the difference uh, on the media side is, you know, I think you have to build a level of trust with your um, with your audience to say, I'm going to talk about things that are, relevant and important from, in my case, a statistical perspective. Um, and we're going to really quickly tie it back to the basketball. You know, we're not going to talk about the, the algorithm or the formula so much, but we're going to talk about, hey, why do we use offensive rating instead of points allowed per game or defensive rating? Uh, well, hey, Portland plays with a lot of pace. Josh Hart runs up and down the floor. And so, we would expect if we run up down the floor, that's more possessions for our other teams. So we'd expect to give up more points because it's more possessions in a game, for example. And so kind of quickly condensing that, you know, I think that's been been one of the biggest challenges. Um, and and also not needing the precision down to probably the same level. Um, you know, the hair splitting that happens in front offices in any context is important, right? I mean, you any NBA team walks into an arena and has basically got 90 points on a given night. It's how you get the last 20 or 30 points that creates every win or loss. So hair splitting, whether it's in scouting or drafting or whatever, is really important in a front office context. It's probably a little less important um, in the media context. We certainly want to give fans the information, the relevant information. But if it's 121.6 or 121.2, you know, what really matters is that we're we're ranked eighth in this metric. Uh, but, hey, we're only one point behind second um you know, we, and we've really seen the team you know do this well recently whatever the basketball uh whatever the metric is explaining in basketball terms and so those have been the adjustments that i've had to make um to kind of condense it down giving people this advanced information that they might not have been exposed to you know hey maybe maybe i'd never heard of effective field goal percentage before but once it's explained that you know it accounts for three pointers and so it's more accurate than field goal percentage makes sense um 
And so, yeah, condensing that down to be, you know, palatable and obviously under the actual constraint of, you know, in a pregame show, your hit is maybe two minutes, two and a half minutes. And uh, you want to have some talk back with, uh, with Neil and Francis in, in the group. And then uh, in game, you know, <laughs> you might need to shut up because Kevin Calabro, Shaden Sharp just throws down a dunk. You got to get out of Kevin Calabro's way in those cases. So, uh, and let the legend go to work. So uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely different, but a, a lot of fun to figure out too. That's what I was going to say. Cause I, I, I caught you on the Blazers broadcast when they're taking on the jazz and, I see someone pop up and I think, are we going to Secaucus? Is this, you know, FanDuel or, or DraftKings talking about gambling? This is an interesting little nugget to have on a NBA broadcast. But then to learn that you're almost teaching the game in a different way to fans by explaining analytics and give, offering something new. I thought it was a nice innovation, just regular game broadcast that we see every day on league pass credit goes all the way up to to jody allen and 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 certainly jeff Curtin and dan hyatt the director and producer on the on the league pass broadcast for portland um portland owns their broadcast so the the team owns it and then licenses it out to root sports the rsn and then obviously to league pass where most people would get it and you know they they wanted to just kind of push the ball forward um in this space and so i'm obviously thrilled to be a part of it but again, it's it's not doing it for doing its sake. It's not, hey, let's do analytics for analytics sake. I think if they wanted to do that, they probably could have just, certainly there are better broadcasters than me <laughs> in the world uh, as a rookie. Um, you know, the, there's people who are better on camera than me, but they were really adamant when they went, when they started this, that they wanted to get someone with firsthand kind of knowledge and expertise on this part of the game. This That's becoming a big part of the game. Um, so we're not doing it just to do it. We're doing it because look, this is what Chauncey Billups, this is what Joe Cronin, you know, th this is what Mike Schmitz, you know, Andre Patterson, the front office and coach Billups and Scotty Brooks and the rest of his staff. This is the type of stuff they're looking at. And so let's give that. Now, obviously we don't have firsthand knowledge and we kind of church and state that stuff, but um, let's give our fans that level of insight as well. And Hey, look, we're tied at halftime against a team, but, uh, you know, Damian Lillard's two from 10 for three. We know Damian Lillard's not going to go two for 10 from three in the second half. So we actually feel pretty good about being tied. You know, that, that might be a, a small example of the type of thing that uh, we can think about it that way and, and kind of add that lens to it. No offense to Moneyball. It's not really a culture war anymore in NBA front offices. There isn't the gut guy and, and the numbers person. Like it's all integrated in, in that respect. I would think any front office that, is worth its salt certainly so you know obviously utah um i've done some consulting for other teams in the eastern conference over the last few years as well you know those groups have been great um you know any front office that that has their stuff together it, it, it's not that paradigm anymore uh, because it's not just analytics it's really just information yeah some information is quantitative is a model um a lot of information is qualitative but how we, you know, a scouting report is information, but can we use our scouting reports to improve our models? Okay, now that gets really interesting, right? Things like that. And so um, it's just an added level of information. It's more so adding the context to it of um, maybe he played, you know, maybe these numbers are this way because he played against certain opponents. Can we either understand that qualitatively or account for it quantitatively? And, and you kind of are always going through that process.
as you prepare for the Jazz and Blazers for a broadcast, what are you looking at? What are you trying to explain to an audience heading into a game like that? You know, the the first the because they played once this year and early on in the season, especially you tend to lean on um, last year, right? If you're in your first 10 games or so, you know, you kind of say, well, you know, hey, they've done a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But, you know, we know last year they were X, Y, Z. I would say the Jazz and the Blazers actually are two of the teams in the NBA that you could kind of throw those things, throw last year out the window from a numbers perspective. You know, the the Blazers had um, a number of injuries. Dame was shut down. Um, they acquired Jeremy Grant. Uh, they acquired, you know, Nasir Little was shut down. Anthony Simons played uh, a good chunk of the minutes. They obviously traded away CJ last season. So having a healthy, their healthy starting five had played like 100 possessions together, you know, last season or so. Um, and, and none, if you include Jeremy. And so Utah, a little bit, a lot of bit of the, of the same story, obviously with, with the wholesale changes to the roster that were made in the off season. And I, I think the things that, you know, as I look at Utah's numbers, um, you know, you obviously see really, really effective offense in a lot of the same ways, even though under a new coach, um, with a new roster in a lot of the same ways, right. A lot of ball movement, uh, a lot of three-point shooting. You now have five shooters on the floor um, when you have Olenek at the five. And, and um, you know, a defense that is well-coached, uh, you know, with some of that size gives up offensive rebounds and some things. But, you know, I, I think you actually have a lot of the same jazz identity from, from teams past um, with obviously its own new um, kind of own new twist on uh, on things. But they're certainly one of the most exciting teams to watch from a pure basketball perspective as well. Um, but when we get ready for a broadcast, we're just thinking about, you know, how do we think these guys, you know, how do we think they're going to generate their offense? How is Portland's defense going to react to that? And same thing on the other side of the ball. And we just kind of go through, you know, all the things that could be the case there. And you try to get it down to 30 seconds or two minutes. Yeah, exactly. That's the, the easy part. Well, we're looking forward to it. I appreciate you taking the time. You can catch him on League Pass as the Blazers Analytics Insider. He is Corey Jez on the podcast on utahjazz.com. Corey, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, JP. Thanks, JP.